come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Episode number 67 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr. recording out of Columbus, Ohio. Now for this episode, I did have to move some things around, which I believe I said in the outro of last episode, but I am going to do Black Appreciation episode number four here, and it's going to be the featured review of Sugar Hill from 1974. It's a black exploitation film that I had never seen in the horror genre, so I decided to, you know, make that be one of the featured reviews here. And the movie I paired it up with is not from that kind of perspective, but I am going to do for the 2021 release is The Queen of Black Magic. thought that it kind of synced up pretty well with what we're getting in Sugar Hill, so that is why these are going to be the two featured reviews here. And then... For many reviews, I have from 1961, The Curse of the Werewolf, which is going to be my Odyssey Through the Ones, and then we have a screener that I got to see of Far From the Apple Tree, and then I watched Bloody Reunion, Them from 2006, as well as Slither. So what I'm going to go ahead and do now is get you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me.
And for my first mini-review here this week, it's going to be my Odyssey Through the Ones film of The Curse of the Werewolf from 1961. This is directed by Terrence Fisher. It is written by Anthony Hines for the screenplay, and then it's based on the novel from Guy Endor. This stars Clifford Evans, Oliver Reed, and Yvonne Romain. This is a horror film that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis being in 18th century Spain, an adopted boy becomes a werewolf and terrorizes the inhabitants of his town. Now, this is a movie that I'd never heard of until I started to delve into the Hammer horror films. I had pretty much seen all of the Universal Classics that were, you know, kind of part of the Dracula werewolf wolfman type series. So this was the next step for me as it was also kind of based off of some similar source material. This one would also be one of the first ones that, if memory serves, that I was excited to see, especially because I saw Oliver Reed's name in the opening credits, because I did know who he was, you know, by the time I was seeing this, and this is also my second viewing of this movie here. Now, what I find this interesting is that I didn't realize the first time that this was based off of a novel. I believe that title was Werewolf of Paris or something along those lines. Don't know much about it aside from that, but it'd be one that I would potentially seek out now in the future that I do know that it exists. Now, where I want to go with this movie is that I really want to lean into the curse here. I find it interesting that our main character of Leon, who as an adult is portrayed by Reed, is a product of rape where his mother was attacked by a beggar inside of a dungeon-like jail cell. Now, his mother is portrayed by Romaine, and then Richard Wordsworth plays the beggar. Now, it is said, though, for the fact that his mother was always kind to this guy, and she was a mute, so she has her own issues, and it is hard to completely fault the beggar, as that he's been tortured due to being jailed for no reason other than seeking charity for an extended period of time. It doesn't give him a pass, though, for what he does. Now, the movie is narrated by Alfredo, and he has, I believe, I don't think it's his wife, I actually think it's his servant of Teresa, who is portrayed by Hira Telfrey. That she reveals the servant girl that if she gives birth to this child on Christmas Day when it is unwanted and at the same time that Jesus Christ was born, it will be inverted and the child will be cursed. It is slightly problematic for me because I'm pretty sure Jesus wasn't born on Christmas, but I will digress there. We also have a lot of factors here that can cause this curse and it's interesting kind of folklore. I do wonder where this came from and if the novel can give more information there or not or if this is just something that literally people thought, you know, in these more primitive times. This being a Hammer Horror film, we get a lot of their tropes here as well. We don't get the years that it takes place, but this is a period piece. Leon is a good enough person and truly loves Christina, who in this movie is portrayed by Catherine Feller. Now, she is a kind of, she's not rich, but she does have a little bit of money and her father is kind of prominent in this little village. Now, Leon is below her in social standing. He really does nothing wrong, though, aside from being born, so this curse is really something that makes him a tragic figure. He isn't relishing it either, like he's not enjoying what he's doing. For me, all oh, this makes me feel horrible for him and want him to break it if possible. What is even more interesting here is that we get a standalone movie that isn't, you know, following more of a classic work here as well. What I do have issues though is a lack of story. Most of this is really kind of filling in the backstory of Leon's parents, his childhood, and then briefly seeing him as an adult. The movie runs 90 minutes, but the pacing still seems to be off for me. I will say, though, I never got bored, so there is that. It just feels like a lot like a Universal movie where we really only get to see the werewolf for the last, like, 20 to, like, 25 minutes or so. It doesn't ruin the movie, but it does feel like something is off for me. Now, what I don't have any problems with, though, is the acting. Evans is solid as our narrator, even before he becomes one of our main characters. He is a good-hearted person to take in this poor servant girl and then in turn raise her child as his own. He seems like a lesser person when it comes to social standing, though, but he has given Leon a good life, or at least good enough life. I think Reed is great here, and it's an interesting role that I'm not used to him seeing. He usually plays more of a villain, where here he's a tragic character. Regardless, he plays it very well. Romaine is gorgeous and is interesting that she doesn't have a speaking role here. Feller is also cute, and I like her performance. And then we have the Marquez... Sinistro, which is, I mean, pretty much a sinister marquee, is portrayed by Anthony Dawson. He's such a horrible human and really the catalyst here for all the bad things that happen. I would also say that Wordsworth is solid as his beggar, and it's an interesting character here as well because he's tragic but commits an unforgivable act. And the rest of the cast really just round this out for what was needed, in my opinion. 
And then really the last thing to go into here would be the effects. I love the look that we get for the werewolf, where Leon is more of a wolf man than he is actually a werewolf. He is bipedal, and I love the effect to make him into this creature. The only gripe that I really have is I want more. We don't really get a transformation scene, but we do get this creepy thing where he is staring down at his hands as they change. I like what they did there. There isn't a lot of blood in this one, but what we do get is bright, and I do have a soft spot for that. Aside from going from there, I do think the cinematography was well done. So in conclusion, I think this movie has an interesting concept and backstory. The only real problem here is that the movie limits itself to having this werewolf you know, be only in the last third or so. What they build, though, is aided by how good the acting is, especially from Reed. The rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. The effects were well done, and the soundtrack fit for what was, you know, what they had to have for that. Now, Hammer does an excellent job with the sets, as it really does feel like an era of the past as well. I would also say this is an above-average movie. Just borderline being on the good range, I don't think it gets up there enough, because it is really just lacking a bit for me really to put it there. So my rating for The Curse of the Werewolf from 1961 is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. And then up next, I have Far From the Apple Tree. This is from 2019, but from what I understand, it's actually going to be getting a wider release as it's only been kind of doing festival rounds and being sent around as a screener. So later this year, this will be coming out on a more like fuller type thing there. And this is directed by Grant McPhee. It's written by Ben Soper. This stars Margaret Fraser, Sorcha Groundsell, and Victoria Little. This is a fantasy horror film that is from the United Kingdom. And it is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb with only 14 ratings so far. And there's not enough ratings yet on Letterboxd, but we're kind of looking like it's hovering around like a two and a half stars at the moment. With the synopsis here is, Judith is a struggling artist, gets her dream job of working for a renowned visual artist by the name of Roberta Roslin. Now, while cataloging her work, she is shocked to see a girl who keeps popping up that looks eerily similar to her. Now, as I was saying, this is a movie that I heard about through Twitter. The account that reached out to me was there kind of doing what seems like PR for it, and I decided that the buzzwords provided piqued my interest, and then this is one where the review is going to be over on the Dark Discussions News Network as well. Now, where I want to start here for my recap of this movie is that it does some things that really kind of work for me, and it's given to us in subtle ways that reveals more into the movie. I personally find this to be good writing. The first thing is that our character of Judith, who is portrayed by Groundswell, does an internet search for Roberta, who is portrayed by Lydell, right after she gets a phone call from her about, you know, getting this job offer. Or about that she wants to at least meet her, because the offer doesn't actually happen until they meet with each other. We see that Roberta is considered an occult artist. And then from here, Judith goes to an interview with her, as I was saying, where I believe we first learn about Roberta's daughter. And if that's not the case, it's when they move out to the estate and kind of start to, you know, interact a little bit more there. But then when they're at the house, I like that the two get to know more about each other since they really don't know all that much, despite, you know, this job offer and then her moving in with her. Now, we get things that Roberta's ancestors have all lived in this mansion and all were artists. There is one that seemingly started their line, though, as far as they know, that was a witch. I love getting this as we're already kind of getting introduced to a little bit of Supernatural here. Then going along with this, I really want to delve into the performance of Groundsell. In this movie, she is playing the role of Judith and Maddie here. What I like is that the character of Judith works hard and is trying to get her break. She isn't doing that well, though, as she was rejected by the school that she applied to for to kind of forward her art and get a little bit more, I guess, more formal education. Now, Roberta sees something in her, though. She is brutally honest with her, which doesn't help Judith, who is constantly seeking validation. On the other side, Maddie is supremely confident in herself. Judith is emulating her and trying to channel this through her artwork. And Judith is seeing all this through the stuff that she is cataloging for Roberta. Now, Roberta does see this as well. I really dug the performance that Ground Cell does playing these similar but different characters to the point where they bleed and blend into each other. Because, I mean, for the most part, like as I was saying, Maddie is so confident in herself where Judith isn't. And I kind of like how, as I was saying, they're not the, that all much that alike, but you can kind of see that there are some similarities that if Judith kind of does some certain things here, she can become more like Maddie. Another aspect that I like about this movie is how it's shot. I'll bring this back up here, but this is an art house film. We have a lot of colored lights and filters that really make things feel surreal. I will admit, the story is pretty basic aside from how you interpret the ending. Part of what we're seeing here is that Judith is sinking a bit into madness. She is losing herself into Maddie. And now what we're seeing here reflects this. There also could be a ritual that's going on. We can't fully trust Judith, though, either. And I think the effects and cinematography helped convey this as well, which is well done. There's also an aspect of voyeurism here. 
we keep seeing things where Judith is being filmed by somebody while she works, and maybe even before that. She is also watching these older videos and films of Maddie, so it's another aspect there as well where she is watching this person through these mediums. If I did have a gripe, I saw some digital static, and I'm not a fan of that. I'm a little bit more forgiving here, so I won't hold it against the movie. We don't get a whole lot of it either, so that does help. Now, something else that really helps here is the soundtrack. We have some really interesting and trippy songs that fit for what they're doing. It almost feels like a music video at times, so the selections really do need to fit if that's going to work, which I feel like it did for me. Now, there's also an eerie vibe that goes through it as well. Then finally, I want to go over the rest of the cast here. Frasier is really limited in this movie, and I love the rock that she is as she wants her daughter back while also giving her spaith, as she is Judith's mother. Now, Judith does reach out to her as she is spiraling, which I did like. Liddell really helps this movie for, you know, this odd artist. We don't always know if she has the best interest at heart for Judith, and others in her life, you know, also question her by what Judith is doing by going off with this woman. Now, this does help to build the mystery, and then aside from that, the rest of this cast really is solid and rounded this out for what was needed, in my opinion. So, in conclusion, I don't know if everyone will dig this movie as much as I did or what they're doing here. We have a story that isn't necessarily new, but I think it's done in an art house way that worked for me. There is something to be said with an artist losing themselves in their work or trying to recapture that creative spark. I think that Ground Cell does a lot with carrying this movie as we are focusing on her with the rest of the cast is kind of really pushing her to end up where she does. The effects, cinematography, and soundtrack also fit for the surreal feel of the movie. If anything, I would have liked it a little bit more fleshed out with the story to know what is truly happening here, but I don't mind the ambiguous ending which allows us to kind of put our own interpretations of what is happening here. I would say this is an above average movie. I feel a little bit more with the story there could have went higher for me. Still, this is worth a watch if you like these type of movies, in my opinion. So my rating here for Far From the Apple Tree is a 7.5 out of 10. And then up next, I have Bloody Reunion from 2006. This goes by the original title of Xuanxing Yuanhe. This is directed by Dae Wong Lim. It is written by Si Yuol Park. And this stars Xing Wong Jang. Yung Soo Kim and Yuang Xiong Kim. This is a horror mystery thriller that is from South Korea. It is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being buried grudges have disastrous consequences for a class reunion in this unapologetically bloody film from Korean director Lim. Now, this is a movie that I'd never heard of until the Podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. I'm surprised that it hadn't popped up, as I'm a fan of South Korean films, especially horror ones. And then for a stretch there, I was seeking out as many that I could. Aside from that, the only thing I really knew was what I heard on the episode, and I came into this one pretty blind. Now, what I really want to say is they do a really good job here at making sure that we know each one of the characters that we have. And there's a decent sized cast that we have. And this almost plays out like a little Giallo film. And we also kind of, even another thing that I would kind of say going from there is that we have a mystery vibe and it almost kind of plays off more like the 10 little Indians that we would get from like Agatha Christie. I could see, you know, some people not necessarily being on board for this film, but I think that it makes a bit more sense to fully understand what happens, you know, in the second half as that's where it's a little bit slower to kind of make sure that you understand who everybody is. Now to shift this slightly, this is an odd movie as well. I don't really know why we're having this reunion with the character of Miss Park, who is portrayed by Mihi-O. Because at first we're led to believe that they all really liked her. I think part of this could be a cultural gap for me, but she treated all of them pretty horribly in different ways. We learned that she could be the cause of Bell Bongs, who is portrayed by Hyun Joon Park. That he has a knee injury that she could have been the cause for. She humiliated both... Yuen Yang, who is portrayed by Sol Ha Yu, and then her fiance of Si Ho, who is portrayed by Huang So Yuo. And then they're all still seeking her for approval, and this couple here is trying to before they get married. Now, she also mocked a Sun He, who is portrayed by Ji Huan Li. Now, she mocked her for her weight, and there could also be some much more heinous abuse that involves. Muong Ho, who is portrayed by Dong Koo Lee as well. Now, all of them have the reasons that they would want to kill her, and there's also some drinking going on here at this party, so we know what can happen there, especially if you're harboring anger that, you know, has been there for a while. Now, there's also the aspect of this movie that Miss Park has this deformed child. 
as children, they would all come to this window and see, you know, this boy inside of this room and kind of make fun of him a bit. Really, the only one that doesn't is a character of Huang Wan. Now, he does get scolded by Miss Park and, you know, for looking in on him and saying that this is not a playground. Of course, the killer in this movie is donning a rabbit mask this boy would wear and actually made. Now, there are some childlike aspects as well as to whoever is behind all this tying up the characters that have been taken into the basement. Now, I'll give this movie credit as I dug what the mystery was building to for this movie. Now, I will admit, though, I think I need another viewing. When the reveals happen, it does feel like a little bit like a cheat and that not everything that we've seen leading up to it is exactly how we saw it. I want to see if some of this stuff I missed or if there are some things here that would, you know, signify that this is not a cheat, especially because I really don't want it to be. Now, to bring this back with a positive kind of look on everything, I really like some of the images that we flash back to to explain the ending as it, you know, comes together. I still don't fully know if I grasp what is actually going on there. I will admit that. Now, what also did like here would be the acting. Jang is solid as this quiet guy. We don't fully trust him, and as things go on, the group reverts to how they acted in school, which I think is kind of a cool thing to play with. Del Bong starts to bully him again, and it is sad, actually. Dong Ku Lee does really well in harboring a dark secret, and I liked that we could pick up some signs before things are revealed there, especially because he's abusing, like, prescription drugs. Ji Huan Lee was good, as well as someone who has low self-esteem. She is doing what she can to kind of present that she has gotten over her trauma, but we still see it's there. Ho is interesting with this duality of her character. She's been humbled by her condition as she's, you know, wheelchair bound and needs to be pretty much taken care of fully, but it doesn't give her a pass for the horrible things that she did in the past. She pretends like some of them didn't happen until she's confronted, which I liked. Park seems like a guy who has, you know, his dreams shattered and drinking is how he copes. He is a bit overweight now, which seems to fit as well. Siola's performance is understated and especially, you know, by the end. She really does well with doing that. Yo is similar to that of Del Bong in that drinking is how he copes with things. So his anger is manifested differently. And then Yu is solid as his counterpart. She really has an interesting scene with Miss Park as well when she's supposed to be helping her bathe. The rest of the cast does round this out for what was needed in my opinion. So really the last thing I want to go into here would be the effects. I was really shocked to see how far they went with things. This movie is bloody and really lives up to that part of its title. I think that the blood has a good color. The attacks look good and the torture scenes really made me cringe. The acting was solid in them as well with conveying their fears of what is happening. I believe there was probably some CGI with ants that we get in one of the torture scenes, but I wasn't bothered there. Aside from that, I thought that everything we got here looks good, even though there is a little bit of an amateurish feel. Not that that was a bad thing as the cinematography still looked good. So in conclusion here, this is a interesting little movie. I like how it starts off feeling like a group of students visiting their teacher, but the more that we learn, the more we see that isn't the case. We're getting a good look at trauma, how it was caused, and then the effects that it has on adults. The actors do a great job in conveying that. As for the effects department, they look to be mostly practical and look good there. Soundtrack fit for what was needed, and this has an interesting mystery, but one that I do want to rewatch to ensure that there isn't a cheat now that I know how things play out. I would say this is an above average movie after my first viewing, so my rating here of Bloody Reunion is going to be a 7 out of 10. And then I also watched Them from 2006. This goes by the original title of Ills. This is written and directed by David Moreau and Xavier Paulid. This stars Olivia Bonamy, Michael Cohen, and Adriana Mocha. This is a horror thriller that is a co-production between Romania and France that is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being Lucas and Clementine live peacefully in their isolated country house, but one night they wake up to a strange noises. They're not alone, and a group of hooded assailants begin to terrorize them throughout the night. Now this is a movie that I heard about when I first got into podcasts as part of the French extremity movement. For whatever reason, it never popped up for me as, until I was working my way through the list on the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. I've been excited to see this one for some time, so I'm glad I could finally tick it off the list as part of that that I'm still trying to catch up on. Now, I really haven't a chance to look this up yet, but this does seem to be based on a crime that did occur. I won't reveal who was arrested, and it seems like ultimately they confessed to the crime, but it is pretty creepy. And it's also a nightmare that could really happen as well. I feel that is where I should delve into would be the realism of this film that we are seeing here. Now, of course, 
I've seen films like Inside, another French extremity film, as well as something like The Strangers. Now, these are both home invasion films that came out roughly around the same time. Having now seen this one, I don't necessarily know if this one fits into the French extremity movement as well, because this one's a bit more subdued. What I will say, though, is there is a bit more realistic feel to this home invasion aspects than you'd get in, like, The Strangers. Not that I dislike that movie in general, but for this movie, much like that other one, it's a fictionalized account of what happens to this couple as well. And since we probably don't know all the ins and outs, as it would be hard to recount verbatim. What really makes this one effective for me, though, is the reveal of who the people are that are stalking them. It gets creepier as things go, which is what you want. One of the assailants has a noisemaker that is pretty unsettling when they use, especially when a character is trying to hide. They also use bird calls to toy with this couple. Now, this movie is a tamer version of another one that came out from the United Kingdom around the same time. I won't give away that title because I don't want to spoil what the reveal is here. But I also think that what works for this movie is that it has a runtime of around 77 minutes, so it doesn't waste any time. Since the movie doesn't bog us down with backstory or why this couple is targeted, aside from them just being isolated at where they're living, I want to move to the acting. For the most part, it is really just a two-person cast with who we get to know. Bonamy and Cohen are really good at establishing who they are. I love that we get to know that this is a happy couple, and they're pretty playful as well. It makes me feel bad and terrified for them as they're being terrorized. I want to see them survive as well. Aside from that, I will give credit to Emmanuel Stefanik, Alexandra Bohui, Horia Ayano, Stefan Kornick, and George Ilano as they're playing the assailants. They really don't have any speaking lines, but they just look menacing, which is, you know, strategic for this movie. So then really the last thing I would want to go into would be the effects. What I've been alluding to is this movie isn't as extreme as the others that we get from this, you know, movement. It is actually pretty subdued with the effects in that in general. The gut punch here is really the ending and the reveal of who is doing the attacks, to be honest. The blood we get looks good, the effects that we get are practical, and they look real. So I will give credit to that, and I think the cinematography is well done to help build tension. So in conclusion here, I think this is an effective home invasion movie. It is keeping in a pretty simple, and a lot of it is building to who is actually doing this. To just reiterate one last time, it's not as extreme as I was expecting. That doesn't mean I hated it, though. I think that it is paced in a way that I never got bored and has my attention all the way through. There isn't a lot in the way of effects, but it also doesn't need them. The sound design is effective in building tension along with the framing of the shots for sure. I would say this is a good movie and one that I would recommend giving a viewing. I will warn you though that this is from France, so I had to watch it in its native language with subtitles. That's a problem, I would avoid this, but to be honest, there isn't a lot of dialogue, so keep that in mind. Regardless, this is a solid home invasion film in my opinion, and for my rating here of them, from 2006, I will give it an 8 out of 10. And then I have Slither from also 2006. This is written and directed by James Gunn. This stars Nathan Fillion, Elizabeth Banks, and Michael Rooker. This is a comedy horror sci-fi film that's a co-production between Canada and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.5 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis being a small town is taken over by an alien plague, turning residents into zombies and all forms of mutant monsters. Now, for this movie here, I saw this for the first time in college. I believe it was when one of the movie channels had given me a free preview of whatever channel that was. I enjoyed this movie then, but I hadn't seen it, so I'm now giving it a second viewing again as part of the podcast Under the Stairs Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. I will say... I had, you know, seen this movie before, but I really didn't remember a whole lot outside of some of the major set pieces. Now, Jamie did walk in while I was watching this and asked me about it. She was shocked to hear that Banks and Fillion were in this movie, and it was done by the guy who did, you know, the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. What really shocks me, though, is the depth of knowledge that James Gunn has for the genre cinema. There is a lot of homage being paid to some movies, and then this is an interesting update to some of those concepts we'd see there. I thought coming in this would be in similar to, you know, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but it's actually much closer to something like the Puppet Masters, Night of the Creeps, Shivers, or the Faculty. And there's also the thing, since there's some humanity left in these characters, but the entity is ultimately in control. There's also a great reference here to Jack McReady, portrayed by Greg Henry to, you know, having a name similar to Kurt Russell's character in The Thing. There's also an interesting concept that continues to pop up through the decades, of, you know, not truly knowing someone or that they could be hiding something within. 
Now, this social commentary works for me. I mean, it's kind of interesting that, you know, in the 50s, we had it more like the Red Scare and how we can continue to, you know, make these movies and just kind of tweak this idea here. And this isn't where the references stop, though, either. Now, if you don't know, James Gunn got his start working with Troma. I bring that up because the head of that company, Lloyd Kaufman, makes a cameo in this movie. On top of that, the character of Brenda, who is portrayed by Brenda James, is watching one of the most famous movies from Troma of the Toxic Avenger, which I wouldn't be surprised to find out that Gunn was on set there for some sort of capacity. This is all just reinforces for me that he loves cinema and it is incorporating different elements here while still doing his own thing. And then really the last thing for the story that I want to circle back to would be this hive mind that we have here where the person to turn is Grant Grant, portrayed by Michael Rooker. And once he's taken over, he's infected with whatever is in control here. I like that whatever it is absorbs someone's memories as well as their mind and everything that they seem to know. We learn later that this creature has been doing this on planets all over the galaxy and just laying waste to them for billions of years. Heck, Starla, who is portrayed by Elizabeth Banks in the opening classroom scene, is talking about Charles Darwin and his theory of evolution. As others become infected, they take on what Grant knows, and we get this creepy scene where a bunch of people are talking like him at the same time. And then there's also a character of Kylie Strutmeyer, who's portrayed by Tanya Saulnier, also gets to experience this on a similar basis, which I think is cool to help the rest of the group understand as she can relay things. And there's also this creepy thing that if an infected person sees something, the main entity and all the other ones know about it. So none of this feels like a cheat for me, and especially since we see this on Earth, you know, with ants and bees, for an example. Now, where I want to go next would be the acting. I really like Fillion in this role as our sheriff. He brings a good sense of comedy with his sarcasm to the performance. I do feel his accent is a bit uneven at times, but I'll forgive that. Banks is beautiful here, and I think her performance is really good for what was needed. It makes sense that she would go on to be the star that she is now. Rooker is good as this villainous guy that we don't really like from the beginning, through Starla, though, I do like that we do get to see some good sides of him, and I think that really kind of helps to make a little bit of humanity with that character. Aside from that, I liked Sonia in her role, Thompson, Henry, and the rest of the cast really do run this out for what was needed. I do like the cameos by Lloyd Kaufman, Rob Zombie, and Jenna Fisher as well. They're all solid. Really, the last thing I would go over would be the effects. Gunn really did lean into using a lot of CGI. What I will say is that for the most part, I thought it worked really well. I can see why Marvel would come pick him up to do the movies that they do since, you know, this is a lower budget take with CGI and they have, you know, pretty much an unlimited budget as he could make things work and it looks pretty real to me. Now, there are some slight issues, as I said, here and there, but I'm not holding that against anything. The slugs actually look pretty solid and the climax has a feel of a movie like Society that really just kind of worked for me. So I will give credit to the cinematography as well. In conclusion here, this is a fun movie. This is surprisingly a movie that is fairly gory and horrific that did pretty well with the general public. Gunn really shows his love for genre cinema by paying homage to movies of the past while doing his own thing. The story isn't the deepest, but it also has some good social commentary here, and I think that the acting really helps this one. Even though they went with CGI, I really don't have any issues there, and I think the soundtrack fit for what was needed, especially with scenes using upbeat, more happy music, with horror elements being synced up with it. I'm a sucker for that if you haven't noticed. For me, this is a good movie that I will bring up again. This movie is fun and a bit gross, and it still is just a good time in my opinion. So my rating here for Slither is going to be an 8 out of 10. And that's all I'm going to have for mini reviews on this week. So what I'm going to do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Kenapa sih kita nggak jadi ke Bali? Sekarang malah ke tempat yang di maps aja nggak ada. Ini Pak Pandi. Dia yang ngegedein kita di Panti Asuhan ini. Kalian udah lama di sini? Wow. Asik ya tempatnya. Dulu di sini ada seorang pengurus Panti namanya Ibu Mira. Terus Ibu Mira dikurung di kamar ini. Dia nyerang kita dengan ibu hitam. 
featured review here on this episode is going to be the queen of black magic it goes by the original title of ratu ilmu himta this is originally from 2019 but it looks like it didn't get its you know full release here in the united states until this year thanks to shutter this is directed by kimo stambul it is written by joko anwar it stars ario bayou hana al rashid adhisti zada and then we're also having Muzaki Radman, Ari Arhim, Ade Furman Hakim, Sheila Dara Aisha, Tanta Gittin, Miller Khan, Emilda Therney, Zelvita DiCorta, Julio Parinquan, Jenny Cinnamon, Yayu A.W. Unru, and then Ruth Marini. So if I do pronounce any of your names wrong there, I do apologize. This is a horror mystery thriller that is from Indonesia. It is currently sitting on a 6.7 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis being here, families were terrorized at the orphanage. Someone wants them dead, apparently with black magic that is very deadly. Now this is a movie that I didn't even realize that I talked about it when I was going through the writer of Anwar's like films. Now, I covered his that he had wrote and directed last year of Impedagori and then stated that, you know, he had written this one as well. Now, when I saw his name attached, I knew that I had to see this. I will admit I heard some buzz as Mark Nato had this as one of his favorites for January and the Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast also covered it on an episode. So that is one of the things that when I saw that, you know, these people were talking about it and seeing it, I knew that I needed to check it out. And I thought it kind of fit well here. Now, it doesn't have any sort of, you know, black appreciation here. I can kind of do a little bit of women's appreciation with this movie, though, as we do have a, you know, queen of black magic is, you know, something that we'll end up kind of exploring in this movie. And I also thought it paired up well with the movie that I was selecting as my second featured review, which I will get into that when I go into that movie as well. It paired up for an interesting double feature, in my opinion. So just to kind of give you some featured notes here, Stambul has 12 films that he's directed. Of them, seven have been horror. He started out in 2004 with a movie called Buini. And then he went to do Dara, and then he did Takut, Faces of Fear, Macabre, Dreadout, and now this. He is also doing Jalengkong 3 that is slated for later this year. So this is the only movie that I have seen from him. Now Anwar is a name that I've brought up on here before, as I've already said. Now to go over it again, he has 12 writing credits, 7 in genre. He started off with Dead Time in 2007. He would go on to do Ritual, Grave Torture, before remaking Satan Slaves, which... Put him on my radar. He's also done Folklore, A Mother's Love, and Pedagory, which I have covered here as a featured review. And then I've only seen, you know, these three now, including, you know, this movie here. Now, much like with Anwar, I believe I brought up Bayou before as well. Just to get you back up to speed, he has 36 acting credits, eight are horror movies. His first was in 2004 with a movie called Ward 13. He has worked both with this writer and director, since with films like Dead Time, Macabre, Dead Mine, The Returning, Impedagori, this, and then the upcoming Ahish 2. Now, I've only seen him in this movie here and, of course, Impedagori. El Rashid has, on the other hand, been in 23 acting credits. Much like her counterpart, she has worked with Anwar before with his first horror film of Ritual. I've seen her in VHS 2, which I'm assuming is my favorite segment of, I believe it is called Safe Haven. Now, she's also been in Three Sum, Jaleng Kung, its sequel, Dread Out, before being in this one as well. Now, I've only seen the two, though, of, you know, this movie here as well as VHS 2. And then we have Zara. She only has 10 acting credits to her name so far, with this being the only one in horror. And then this is the only other thing that I've seen her in. But 
instead of just leaving this for the end for trivia, is I did want to say that she wanted to join this movie because of Anwar and Stambol, and this became her first experience in the horror movies, as I was saying. Now, we start this movie off with an interesting kind of setup, in my opinion. We have the father of Hanif, who is Bayou, driving his wife of Nadia, who is Al-Rashid, and their three children to an orphanage that he grew up in. Their only daughter is Dina, portrayed by Zara. Their oldest boy is Sandi, portrayed by Irham. And then their youngest is a boy of Haki, who is portrayed by Ramdedhan. The man who runs the place is sick, and they want to, you know, make what limited time he has on Earth better if possible. Hanev has done well for himself after leaving the orphanage. His children are complaining about the lack of cell phone reception, and it looks like they're happy overall. Things get a bit dour, though, when he hits something while not fully paying attention to where he's going. It does appear to be a deer, but we see that it could have been actually something else. Now, when they arrive at the orphanage, Hanif meets with a couple that stayed here of Mamen, who is portrayed by Hakim, and Siti, who is portrayed by Aisha. They've been caring for Pakbandi, who is Anru. Also coming are Hanif's closest friends from this time living here at the orphanage of Anton, who is portrayed by Gintin. His wife of Eva, who is portrayed by Theron, as well as Jeffrey, portrayed by Khan, along with his new bride of Lena, portrayed by Decorti. Also living at this orphanage are Hashbi, who is portrayed by Perengon, who is a lot like Hanif. He's had chances to be adopted, but elected to stay and help. And then there's also Rani, who is portrayed by Cinnamon. Now, the rest of the children who are orphaned are away on a trip, but are due back soon. We do know that this place has a checkered past, despite how fondly the trio of guys remember it or how it is presented by the teens living there. There is a locked room where Ibu Mira, portrayed by Marani, died. Haki is curious about what happened to her. Hanif notices something on his car and goes back to check to see what he really hit at kilometer number 81. It is there that he makes a grisly discovery that really gets this night of terror started. Now that's where I want to leave my recap of the movie, as I get you up to speed without really spoiling anything, and I would say that about the end of the first act as well, now what this movie does really well is atmosphere. It doesn't really have to lean in too much that we're in the present. It does deal with cell phones where the children all have them, and this place is so far in the middle of nowhere that they don't work. Ronnie doesn't know what Wi-Fi or the internet is. This is partially being how remote this orphanage is located, but it also is that she's poor. I get the feel that we're mixing the modern world here with Hanef, his family, along with Anton and Jeffrey, with their wives coming back to this place that is a bit more traditional. That really works with the true horror that comes from some of the things that we get here, and a more you know rational mind couldn't always fathom. Now, if you read my review of Anwar's films of Satan Slaves or Impedigori, then you know I love the you know look that he gives into the lives of people from a country that is much different from where I live. We see that there are have religions there like Muslim that are practiced, but there's a good portion of these that are having more pagan beliefs that are indigenous to the area. See now these rituals and things play out is, you know, something that interests me for sure. This is where I want to go next. Without spoiling things, the title of this movie really gives away there's going to be black magic and witchcraft going on here. This movie really doesn't waste any time in getting us into that. And on top of it, I think it does an excellent job in introducing characters to us. We have a large cast. I figured this would either have characters that would flee or they would be there as body count. It takes a darker turn after Ronnie reveals that what has happened to Mira and then, you know, when Hanif realizes what he really hit. This movie doesn't pull any punches. Children aren't completely safe here and I think that, you know, does help to ramp the horror up for me as well. I think I want to go next here to the effects. We get some quite a bit of them being practical which if you know me i love that there are some scenes in this movie that really made me cringe and call out you know and having my hands go numb which i happen to do when i see something that's either really bloody or just really kind of gets to me there is some effective things here that you know i believe what i'm seeing and that's something that's strategically done there are torture scenes here that are also interesting that characters reveal some things that get used against them later and i'll be honest that is good writing they set up some of these set pieces, and I was on board for that. We also get some CGI here. Now, some of this does work for me, or at least it's to the point where I don't necessarily mind it, especially when, you know, you're having some good-looking sequences. There are some that don't necessarily work, though, either. Regardless, this movie has some great cinematography as well, going along with the good writing here as well as some good acting. Bayo is solid as our de facto hero. 
he had the chance to get adopted, and from what we hear, he elected to stay and help those that you know, he had to become close with. What makes it even interesting here is that Hanif reveals some of the things that are made in this movie. I love the duality we get with the character of Hashbi, and I think that Perrin Kong really helps that as well. Rashid is really good as Hannah's wife, and I love the growth of her character. We learn that he hides things from her to not upset her, but she's amazingly strong by the end of things. Zara, Radhama, and Irham are all good as their kids. I like the rest of the cast that we get, and they round the movie out for what was needed. Now, really, the last thing I want to go before closing out here would be the soundtrack and sound design. I think for the former, the selections that were made were good. They fit the scenes and helped to ramp up the feel that we need for them. I did find it interesting that they tended to go a bit louder at times, which actually distorted the sound on my speakers. I'm not sure if that was intended and I just didn't have my thing set up properly, but it worked for me. The other part here is the sound design. I love that they play with hearing someone off screen that draws characters while also hearing the agony, which was quite effective for the atmosphere. So that's all I really want to do for my recap of the movie. I think that got you kind of everything you needed to. Just had a couple more pieces of trivia that I wanted to share here, which this is a remake of a 1981 film of the same name, starring Indonesia's most notorious scream queen of Susanna. Anwar, of course, did write this, and he's been a writer and director of a few different films. He directed, you know, one half of the Mo Brothers, Stambul, and his second horror movie were directed alone along with, you know, Dread Out. Just showing that these guys all kind of work together here, which I do like to see since it seems like a little bit of success has been had. So instead of, you know, not, you know, kind of giving back to his area, he's done a lot of that, which I do appreciate. And, I mean, seeing how much I like Anwar's films and seeing this one here, I would be willing to check out more of theirs. But in conclusion here, I think this is an effective movie. I like the setting that we're given, how the characters are introduced and the dark atmosphere that is built. If... I really have any issues here after this first viewing some of the cgi doesn't necessarily work for me this isn't to say that it ruined things but it does you know affect a little bit the story kept me interested the reveals worked and the movie really does make me cringe at times for where they took things i would say this is a really good movie and one that i will revisit again later this year just to make sure and to see where it stands after that second viewing for my year-end list so my rating here for the queen of black magic from 2019 is a 9 out of 10. i'm not going to do a spoiler section or anything like that because I do want you to check this movie out, especially, you know, if you've seen any of Anwar's previous films or just like these kind of, you know, ghostly witchcraft type movies from Indonesia, because I do think it's worth it. But what I'm going to go ahead and do now is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Blood is red. Voodoo is blue. Sugar is sweet. Revenge is sweeter. I'm passing seconds. Meet Sugar Hill. No, please. Not a place, but a brand new face. My friends call me Sugar. The foxiest. Looking for anything special? Sexiest. Deadliest chicken town. The mob took Sugar's man away. And now, she's gonna make them pay. I want them dead. With a voodoo priestess called Mama Matres. I know what you can do. The power you possess. How strong is your hate? And Baron Samdi, too. My particular special. A drink that I'm famous for. The zombie. This is my domain, a kingdom of the dead. And an army of undead behind her. Each death has had something to do with voodoo ritual. There's nothing that sugar can't do. Use it. The mob has never seen anything like Sugar Hill and her zombie hitmen. And for my second featured review here is going to be Sugar Hill from 1974. This is directed by Paul Manslaski. This is written by Tim Kelly. It stars Marky Bay, Robert Corey, Don Pedro Colley, and it also features Betty Ann Reese, Richard Lawson, Zara Cully, Charles Robinson, Larry Don Johnson, Dick Haggard, Ed Gildert, 
Albert J. Baker, Raymond E. Simpson, Truman C. Carroll, Big Walter Price, and Charles Cron. This is a action crime horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.8 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being, when her boyfriend is murdered by gangsters, Sugar Hill, portrayed by Bay, decides to not get mad but bad. She enlists the aid of the voodoo Lord of the Dead to get her gruesome revenge. Now, this is a movie that I heard pretty early on into listening to podcasts about for the first time. It was one that I didn't necessarily know completely a lot about, but I knew it was pretty popular in the black exploitation subgenre. I'm pretty sure it appeared on Horror Noir, the documentary, and I decided it'd be a good time to watch for, you know, black appreciation here on the podcast. And I also think it's kind of an interesting thing here is that we have two women who have been scorned in different types of ways and getting their revenge in a supernatural way. One is a, you know, witch of the black arts while we have Sugar Hill here who is, you know, trying to get revenge using a voodoo deity. Now, before I jump into this movie here, I have some notes here that the director of Maslasky has only directed this movie here, and it appears he's more known for producing comedies, especially it looks like the Police Academy movies. As for the writer of Kelly, he wrote four films. Only one of them is horror, and I have seen it. It's an interesting little British film by the name of Cry of the Banshee. Our star of Bay only appeared in five movies, and it looks like this is the only one that was horror, plus the only one that I've seen. Now, Corey, on the other hand, has 40 acting credits. 18 of them were in horror. His first was Count Yorga Vampire, which I have seen. Aside from that, I have also seen him in Dr. Fibes Rises Again, this movie here, and Madhouse. Now, the latter two have him working with the great Vincent Price, and I do have some trivia that I'll share, including that later. Now, the last actor I'll look at is Kali. He's been in only 15 movies total. This is his first horror movie, and I've also seen him in the Piranha remake from 1995. He did appear in Dead End in 2016 as the only other horror movie. Aside from that, I have seen him in Beneath the Planet of the Apes as well. Now, we start this movie off here with a ritual. It is soon revealed that this is actually just being, you know, some entertainment done at a club that is owned by Langston, portrayed by Johnson. He goes to the bar where his girlfriend of Diana, Sugar Hill, is sitting. They get interrupted by a gangster by the name of Fabulous, portrayed by Robinson. Now, he's a local gangster that works for a much bigger person by the name of Morgan, who is portrayed by Quarry. They want him to sell the club, but he's not interested. When he declines and gets loud with them, he's attacked in the parking lot later that night when he goes to leave and left for dead. This upsets Sugar, of course. He was the love of her life, and she doesn't really care about what's going to happen with hers now that he is passed away. She wants revenge. So he seeks out the aid of Mama Matrice, who is portrayed by Cully, who lives out of town around the estate that Sugar grew up on. She is a powerful voodoo priestess. When Sugar relays what she wants to do, she questions her and agrees to perform the ritual, calling the Lord of the Dead Baron Semity. Now this is portrayed by Kali. He agrees to help her by raising his army of the undead. She offers him her soul, but he tells her something differently that he wants. Now the two of them go about picking off one by one this crew that is behind the death of Langston. Morgan at first doesn't realize what is happening, but the more and more his guys disappeared, the higher the stakes become. He believes that Sugar will sell him the club, but he soon realizes that she has something else on her mind. Things do get a bit interesting here when a former love of hers, Valentine, portrayed by Lawson, who is a police detective who is assigned to this case. He still has feelings for her, and she still seems to care about him. He will have to suspend his disbelief of the normal world in order to help solve what is going on here. Now, that's where I'm going to leave my recap of this movie, and what I will state here is that this movie doesn't have the deepest story to it, and that is something that does become problematic as this goes on for me. This isn't where I necessarily want to start, though, as I think the positives of this movie is where I should actually begin. The first thing would be that I love the idea of this movie. As a zombie fan, we aren't getting the traditional reanimated corpses that everyone knows about, but we're going back to the roots of the idea with voodoo. I think this movie does something interesting here leading off with the opening sequence being that we're seeing a ritual. It sets the tone while throwing off new viewers thinking that we've missed something. It then gives us our main character as well as our villains that we'll be seeing throughout, which is well done. Now, I want to flesh out a bit more here of the voodoo aspects of this movie, which I am a fan of for a couple different reasons. The earlier one is that Child's Play series, the name Dumbala, comes up in the ritual that Chucky does in order to get his soul in and out of the toy. Mama Matrice says that name, and it never realized that it was a name of a voodoo god until now. 
The other aspect is the name of Baron Semity. I first learned his name from playing the video game of Goldeneye. I would go on to realize that James Bond actually had to deal with this as a villain in one of his movies. And I've also seen this character pop up throughout different movies or TV shows as one of the more powerful deities in Voodoo as well. I do really enjoy how whimsical and playful that Kali takes on this role on top of all of that. Then, really, the last part of the story that I would go into is I love the idea of this movie. Sugar seems to have grown up around Voodoo as something that she knows, but doesn't practice it. Now, she had a good life. She's a successful photographer, loves Langston, and they really aren't being held back by enjoying their life as they see fit as black people. That isn't to say that there aren't some things that they have to, you know, deal with and that they don't see in their world. And I mean, listening to some of the characters talk with how racist they are, it could be worse for them. I just love that as tragedy strikes, she doesn't care about how it will affect her in the end. She seeks out this voodoo deity using these zombies that he raises as her hitmen. As a different take on the revenge film, that works for me. Then to get back to what I was saying earlier, I do think the story could have had some depth to it. I'm good with how they play things out in the start and her decision making that, you know, she ends up going that she's going to kill these criminals. My problem is that she doesn't seem to have any stakes. Sugar never really runs into problems outside of what happens, you know, the crux of everything. She does have Valentine looking into what she does, but I think that he's dealt with too easily. Morgan and his guys never really seem to have a chance to prevent Sugar from getting her revenge. We also don't really seem to have anything at the end where I'm worried about her. I just feel some of the tension is lost by not adding an element where Sugar might not get exactly what she wants for me. I know it is front-loaded for tragedy for her, but as bad as to say, it's not enough for me. But I think next I'll go to the acting here. I think that Bay is not only beautiful, but I love her character. The only issue is more with the writing. We don't get to see her as a baseline before the tragedy. What does work though for me is that I don't think that has ruined her. Her interactions with Valentine are probably more about how she is before the events of the movie. I do love the outfit that they put her in in this white bodysuit when she's you know showing off her great body as she's getting her revenge. She also brings some good sass to the character. Corey is really good as this villainous gangster. It really fits what they're going for, and when it comes to these black exploitation films, I really like that he's this you know white overlord here that is kind of manning all of these strings that are you know trickling down. And then I already said I liked how Kali plays his role. Cully is good along with Lawson. I would also say that the rest of Morgan's group, including Betty Ann Reese, Robinson, and you know the like, also run this out for what was needed. And then next, I want to go over to the effects for this movie. The major thing I need to say here is that I love the look of the voodoo zombies. They have paint on them, which I'm assuming would be for like rituals. They have fake cobwebs that worked for me, despite them not looking great. What I really like though is their eyes. They have these like silver orbs, which are made to look alien-like, and it makes it creepier. I also like the aspects of the story where, you know, they take like lab results to investigate crime scenes and it makes Valentine question things that cause him to do research into voodoo. Cinematography is also well done, but I do have a gripe here. This is rated PG, so much of the deaths are done off screen. I'm okay with a few done that way, especially for rating purposes, but I would like to see that, you know, some of this stuff being done on screen for this to fully work and it doesn't unfortunately. Then really the last thing to go over here briefly would be the soundtrack. For the most part, it doesn't really stand out, but it does fit the scenes for what was needed. It does help to build what they feel and what they're going for. What I really wanted to comment in here would be the sound design. I like hearing the drums or the sounds that you get with the rituals. I also think it's effective here to hear the rattling of chains that these zombies are wearing. Many were dead slaves still wearing them, so I like incorporating that into the story and to the movie as well. And I'll actually get into that here in just a second, a little bit more in depth. But I'm going to do some trivia here before I close this out is that the Voodoo Museum and Research History Building is in fact the Heights branch of the Houston Public Library. The building was constructed in 1925. In real life, the building is a registered historical landmark in the state of Texas. This film brought to an end Quarry's four-year reign as a horror star at American International Pictures, which began with Count Yorga Vampire. Both he and Vincent Price left the studio the same year. The zombies resemble more closely the creatures of Voodoo Legend, which is more of like the walking dead who do a bidding of a human master than the flesh-eating living dead ghouls popularized by Romero. According to this film, the zombies are preserved bodies of slaves brought to the United States from Guinea. This is another one that American International Pictures had, you know, combined horror and black exploitation genres with Blackula from 72 and its sequel of Scream Blackula Scream from 73. The eyes of Baron Semite's zombie horde strike a resemblance to those of the Lectroids, 
featured in The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension from 84. This was released theatrically in the United States in February of 74. It was cut to 83 minutes for television and retitled The Zombies of Sugar Hill. The film was released on VHS by Orion Home Video in 96 and on DVD in October 2011 as part of MGM's limited edition series. This is Cully, who had played Mama Jefferson on the TV show The Jeffersons. Robinson is known for his role as Mac Robinson on NBC's Night Court, you know, portraying the character of Fabulous in this movie. Rapper Daniel Dumil, a.k.a. MF Doom, sampled several audio clips from this film under his alias King Ghidorah on the album Take Me to Your Leader. And this movie is part of the notorious German Schäuffelfass series, which sounds a lot like Mystery Science Theater 3000, where they take some of the you know worst movies and they will kind of do a commentary over top of it. In conclusion here, I don't think this is a great film, but I think it does a lot of good things. It is a different take on the revenge film that involves a woman without needing her to be sexually assaulted. I love the lore of this movie by using the creature effects that do look good here. The acting is pretty solid across the board, along with the use of sounds and the soundtrack for the movie. I do think the story could have a bit more depth to it to strengthen it, as well as have some of the deaths be on screen to bring it up for me. Still found this to be enjoyable and would say this is an above average movie. If they would have added some more of the things that I have issues with, I think I would have raised my score for sure. So my rating here for Sugar Hill is a seven out of 10. So what I'm gonna go ahead and do now, I'm not gonna do a spoiler section here either. I don't think there's enough here that I can really kind of delve too much into any more than I already have. So what I am gonna do though is kick you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. back one last time and then just to close everything out here on the show if you'd like to get in touch with me you can send me an email at journey with a cinephile at gmail.com if you want to send anything like what i'm doing that you like and what i'm doing that you don't like you know any kind of critique like that that would be greatly appreciated and also if you want to have anything you know right on the show just let me know and you know send it through that way if you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past ones, it's horrorreview.webnode.com. If you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. If you'd like to follow me on Letterboxd, it's David OSU. 
and I do all of the reviews that I have, you know, on Reviews of the Dead are also kind of posted over there on Letterboxd. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, it's davidosu87. And then if you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word there. And I will also have all of those links in the show notes just to make it easier on you as well. And then... The last thing I would ask for you to do, if you could, is whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated there. And then for my next episode, it is going to be my women's appreciation number four. And the first movie, the 2021 film, is going to be the one that I've been highly anticipated to watch of St. Maud, which is directed by a woman and also has a woman main character. And I think what I'm going to do is pair that up and kind of do a little bit more black appreciation as well as I'm going to have Eve's Bayou as the other featured review, as that is directed by, I believe, by Cassie Lemons, who is, you know, a prominent black actress from earlier in the 90s. And then I know the other one is going to be my Odyssey Through the Ones film of The Innocence, which I haven't seen in some time. So I think that's all I really kind of want to get you up to date with there. So whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing that and have a great time. This is your tour guide of David Garrett Jr. signing off. It had been a wonderful evening. And what I needed now to give it the perfect ending 